invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. While you're doing that, a reminder that the communion hymn is not number 15, it's 424. Uh, the title's correct. The number is last week's, our last communion's number. Uh, this morning, just a heads up, we are going to be looking through a lot of verses um, as we consider uh, Isaiah and then look forward to the birth of Christ. And we'll be, I'll be reading this morning chapter 8, verse 22 through to chapter 9, verse 7. Uh, but we'll be looking at other places in the Old Testament as well as the New. We'll hear now the word of the Lord. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this a promise from long ago that was fulfilled um, uh, long ago for us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see how it applies to us this day. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this Sunday, we, as I mentioned, we're starting uh, uh, and leading up to Christmas Day, we'll be focusing on four different themes uh, related to the Advent candle. This week, as you already know the, from the Advent reading, the theme is hope. Next week will be peace, then joy, and then love. And so hope, peace, joy, and love. And we begin with hope. You know, in the dictionary, if you were to look up hope, you would see that it's kind of a wishful thinking thing, a, a feeling of expectation and desire that something just might happen. You know, I hope that it doesn't rain. I, I hope that it's sunny. I hope the eagles win. You fill in the blank. It, it's a wishful thinking. Uh, there's no guarantee. There's uncertainty to it. Actually, the strength of the hope is found in uh, your own desire. I just, I really want this to happen, even though you have no, maybe have no say over its outcome. But that's not the hope of the Bible. Biblically speaking, in the Bible, hope is the confident expectation that God, with what God has promised, it'll come to be. And so the hope is strengthened 
by the fact that it's based on God and his faithfulness. He makes a promise. It's hope. It's a certainty because it's based on that promise of God. And so that's the hope we're talking about this morning. And it was a hope that Israel desperately needed, especially at the time that Isaiah wrote his prophecy. You see, at the time of Isaiah, uh, uh, Israel surely things didn't look hopeful for them. And that's in the dictionary definition sense. No matter how much they wished it, as we read in verse 22 of chapter 8, and they will look to the earth, but behold, there was distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. That was the condition of Israel at the time. In fact, the darkness and gloom of Israel has been declared since the beginning of the book of Isaiah. You know, we, we often only know certain verses from Isaiah. Uh, maybe you do. But in the beginning of the book, we read that, that the people were very superstitious. That was chapter 2. There was idolatry, we're told. There was materialism. There was alcoholism. There was arrogance. Uh, there was social disintegration. In chapter four, uh, five, 3, the sensuality of the people stressed, the, the lack of good leadership is mentioned. Things were so dark that their own religion was a mixture of all the religions around them, all the practices of the Canaanites and the Assyrians and the Egyptians. There was cultic prostitution was practiced at various shrines. Uh, to please the sexual appetites of the gods. And even, you read in Second Kings, children were sacrificed to Moloch, the god of the Ammonites. That was Israel. That's how bad Israel had gotten. And so what happens? Well, God's anger is stirred. Honestly, even prior to this, God's anger toward his people had already began. In verse 1, we read, in the, formal time, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, when he refers to the former times, he refers to the Assyrian invasion uh, by king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser. And whenever a foreign nation would march in to conquer Israel, the first area that they would come in contact with was the land beyond the Jordan that we read here, Galilee of the Nations. That's where all the Gentiles would have been living in that area. Well, verse 1 also mentions uh, Zebulun and, and Naphtali. They are the two northern tribes, north, northernmost northern tribes of Israel. And they, those two tribes, have been brought into contempt by God himself. And what God did was use Assyria and Tiglath-Pileser to carry out his judgment and wrath on Israel. In Isaiah chapter 7, we read that, In that day the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser, the head of the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. It's metaphorically speaking. God would sweep away the nation through his razor, Tiglath-Pileser. And that's what happened. That's it. Historically, the event that happened. Towns and villages were destroyed. People were taken away, and they had to resettle hundreds of miles away. Uh, you can only imagine. And so as you read the book of Isaiah... You, you get a pretty descript picture of the darkness and the gloom that befell Israel because of their sinfulness. 
and, and because of the resulting judgment of God on that sinfulness. There was darkness, we read, and there was gloom, and there was anguish, and it was everywhere. Now, this uh, described here in Isaiah, what we find here in Isaiah is actually, yes, historical, yes, it is true, but it's a biblical picture of the darkness that invades the hearts of every unbeliever. In Ephesians chapter 4, we read, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of your thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. That's a description of everybody that's born into this world and is an unbeliever. Sinners, unbelievers, or as they're called here, notice the Gentiles behave as they do because they are blind. Their hearts are darkened. The Apostle John says, men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. That's John 3.19. And Paul preached that the gospel to the Gentiles so that they might be turned from darkness to light. And so that image there from darkness to light is one of going from unbeliever to believer. Again, everyone born into this world has a darkened heart. We are all born into this world like the people of Israel at the time of Isaiah. We are idol worshipers, creating a God of our own liking. We are arrogant materialists who get drunk on pleasure rather than pleasing God. We are trapped in deep darkness with no desire to follow the path of light. We are like those described in Proverbs who forsook the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. And so earlier when we were in Ecclesiastes, I mentioned the sermon by Jonathan Edwards. Well, the title suits us. We are sinners, apart from Christ, unbelievers born into this world, sinners in the hands, not of a loving God, but of an angry God, who's, who's angry with our sinfulness. We read that God pours contempt from Job on princes and loosens the belt of the strong. He uncovers the deep out of darkness and brings deep darkness to light. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and he leads them away. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a trackless waste. And they grope in the dark without light. And he makes them stagger like a drunken man. And so left to ourselves, like Israel, we're just, we're groping in the dark without light. You, you can see the imagery. You get the idea. And yet, despite this reality, looking back at Isaiah, despite this reality, particularly as it relates to Israel, even in the midst of that deep, deep darkness, Isaiah insists that hope was part of the here and now, that there was hope. How? How could he say that after everything he says and describes them? And the answer is because in the midst of the darkness and gloom, we read that God makes a promise. Look at our passage, verses 1 and 2. 
But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. While they were walking in darkness, and, and by the way, while they refused to receive the light, to walk in the light, they weren't looking for the light, God promises to give them light. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And so where there is gloom, it's promised there will be no gloom. And where there is deep darkness, it's promised there will be a great light shone. There was nothing they could do to earn this light. They did not deserve this light. They were committed to darkness, but see, God can bring light out of darkness. I mean, the first chapter of the Bible teaches us this. The earth was out form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And so out of the darkness and in the midst of the darkness, God brings light. And so here it is. The ones walking in deep darkness suddenly found themselves blinded by this new light they had never seen before. And see, to get a a fuller picture of what Isaiah is saying here, we need to go back to the time of Judges. Like I said, it's going to kind of be a Bible study. I'll just walk through these. In the days of the Judges, those northern tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, they were oppressed by Sisera the Canaanite. We read about it in Judges 4. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. If you go to Judges, you'll notice this cycle. They do evil. God redeems them. Uh, They do evil. They're punished. They repent. God redeems them. And they go back to doing evil. Well, at this point, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. The commander of his army was Sisera. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had, Sisera had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. And so God raises up Sisera to conquer his people because of their disobedience and their sin. Well, God hears then their cries for help, and what does he do? He raises up Deborah and Barak to deliver his people. That's Judges 4 and 5. Now, the name Barak means lightning bolt. And Isaiah drew from that history of Barak to prophesy concerning the coming of this light. In the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, uh, a Barak would be seen, a, a great light would be seen. And so a, a greater Barak, a Barak would come and deliver the nation from their darkness. That's the promise here. Darkness would be replaced with light. Gloom would be replaced with joy. And then you go to verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. The rejoice before you as with joy is the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And so what happens is God's going to uh, initiate this reversal darkness to light, and gloom to joy. Now, in verses 4 to 6, he gives us three reasons for having hope of experiencing this light and joy. 
The first one's in verse 4. It, it's, it's liberation. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now, you, you hear those words, yoke and burden and shoulder and oppressor. And I don't know what it makes you think of, but it would have immediately made the first readers of Isaiah think of the Exodus. See, in, in, in Leviticus 26, we read, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves, and I have broken uh, the, the bars of your yoke and made you walk upright. In Exodus 3, then the Lord cried, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their oppressors. I know their sufferings. In Exodus 6, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them. In Psalm 81, I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. And so here are these terms, yoke and burden and shoulder and oppressors. And it would have signaled in the minds of the readers of Isaiah of the Exodus. It would have reminded them of the Exodus. And so Isaiah takes their deliverance, Israel's deliverance from Egypt, and he applies it here now. But he doesn't stop there. He adds another history lesson, as it were. Look at verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now, that's a reference to Gideon's victory over Midian in the time of Judges. Uh, uh, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian. Remember the cycle I mentioned. And so because of their evil, they fell into the hands of Midian until God called Gideon to deliver his people. Now, do you know the story of Gideon? He, he, he was raised up, and he has a harm, an army of 32,000. And God says, no, 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 you're not going to fight with that many. You're allowed to bring 300 in the battle. And that's it. And he goes to battle with the Midianites. God was demonstrating, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so we read in chapter 7 of Judges, with the 300 men, God, I, it says, but speaking of God, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And so do you see what Isaiah is doing? He's taking them through Israel's history uh, by way of reminder. He explains that they can have hope because God has proven himself time and time again throughout their history that he would deliver his remnant. They would be liberated just like in the Exodus. And they would be liberated just like in the time of Gideon. And so that's the first reason for hope, the promise of liberation. The second reason for their hope is found in verse 5. For every boot, Of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Uh, Isaiah's point here is that God's divine victory will be inaugurated at a time of peace, will inaugurate this time of peace when the brutality and the horrors of war are gone forever. They're banished. Psalm 46 responds to this. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Remember, God raised up Assyria to judge the Israelites. Well, now he's going to destroy Assyria and bring peace to Israel once again. The people will enter into the fruits of victory 
a, a, a victory they did not win for themselves. God won it for them, not themselves. And so that's the second reason for hope. They are going to enjoy the fruit of God's victory. It's God's victory, not their own. And so the first reason is liberation. The second reason for hope is enjoying the fruits of victory God wins for them. And both of those lessons leads to the third and fundamental reason for hope. We read about it here. It's this child. We read about a child. How will the people be liberated? Oh, we have hope that he will. How how will they enjoy the fruit of victory? How's that going to come? And the answer is given in verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And so think of the things we learn about this child. He's a child. He comes from human descent. He's a son, and that speaks, of course, of his maleness. But more importantly, in Hebrew times, it was the dignity of the royal line. It's pointing to his kingship, this child. Third, he is born, yes, but he is also given by the Lord. So he's born and given by the Lord. And and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Remember earlier, the, the, the shoulders of the oppressed people? Well, now his people's shoulders are delivered when this child's shoulders accept the burden of rule. And so the great light of verse 2 is the child of verse 6. The child who is given by the Lord. The child who will be a king. The child who will bear on his shoulders the weight of the people's burdens. And so the reason they were to have hope in the midst of darkness is the coming of this child who we obviously know as Jesus. See, Jesus is the one who can turn back deep darkness. Jesus is the one that can turn gloom to joy. Jesus is the one who ushers in the new exodus. Jesus is the one who uh, frees us from captivity. Jesus is the one that's greater than Barak. Jesus is the one who's greater than Gideon. Jesus is the one who tramples down our enemies. All these figures point to Jesus. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one who secures our victory. Jesus is the one who makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He is the one who breaks the bow and shatters the spear, who burns the chariots with fire, who liberates us from our sinful oppression, and who delivers us from the darkness of our hearts. And because of him, we enjoy the fruit of victory. Amen? Amen. The Apostle John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. See, Jesus is our hope because He is the light. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome Him. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. He was not the light. He came to bear witness to the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. 
Now see, Jesus himself said after his birth, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you realize if Jesus isn't who Isaiah describes, this God-man, this Messiah, this King, the sinless one as Scripture calls him, how arrogant that statement is? I could say to you, you know, I'm the light of my family. And you may even question that, but you may give me that one. I could say I'm the light of my street. Well, you don't know. Maybe there's just a bunch of dark, evil people living on my street. And you get the point. I could go on and on. But if I actually say, you know, I'm the light of America, you'd fire me, right? Jesus says, I am the light of the world, the whole world. I am the light of the world. And then he says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. Why? Because you will have his light. And so Jesus is indeed the light, the light of Isaiah. But understand that that's more than just an illustration. It's more than just a metaphor for Jesus. It's actually a fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah. See, of course, Isaiah here speaks of the deliverance of God's people from the Babylonian captivity. That's true. That happens. They were going to be taken into captivity in the land of darkness, and God would deliver them out of it. That's true. The deliverance that Isaiah proclaimed had to do with their actual return from Babylon, which happened in history, and God brought about in his own timing. But it also pointed beyond itself to a greater deliverance of both Jews and Gentiles from spiritual darkness because of this promised child, because of the promised light. You know, when Jesus started his public ministry in Matthew chapter 4, this is what we read. Now, when we heard that John had been arrested, speaking of John the Baptist, who, the one who foretold that Jesus would be the light, he, when John had been arrested, we were told Jesus withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light was shown. From that time forward, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, just as Zebulun and Naphtali, those names I, I keep mispronouncing throughout the sermon, the Galilee of the Gentiles have been the first. Remember, they were the first to experience God's wrath. They came through uh, when, when somebody was conquering them. They would be conquered first. And now 700 and some years later, they were the first to experience the blessing of his intervention. God did not forsake his people. He came to his people first where they had suffered the most, and from that place, he launched salvation for the world. And notice what Matthew tells us, how this light would be dispensed. How is this light going to be dispensed for the achieving of salvation? Jesus began to preach and, and saying, repent for the kingdom of heavens at him. It, it was through the, the preaching of the gospel and it is still today through the preaching of the gospel that, 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 that we would dispel darkness. It, and the gospel is what? It's none other than Christ lived and died and rose again as our substitute. And so by the light of his word, Christ sets 
the prisoners free. And so do you get it? Just like the inhabitants of Capernaum, like the Gentiles of Galilee long ago, you and I were in gross darkness. We sat in darkness. Why? Because we loved it. And we did not seek the light. But, but a great light has shone upon us. And so if we believe his word, if you accept that he lived for you and, and died for you and, and rose again for you, if you repent, there is promised light to replace the darkness. There's joy instead of the gloom. There is freedom instead of the oppression. There is peace instead of war. Paul said, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our light. He's our joy. He's our freedom. He's our peace. Jesus is our hope. And so is it any wonder, I'll close with this, is it any wonder that we read in Isaiah, uh, we learn that this child is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace? One writer said, as the Wonderful Counselor, he has the best and wisest ideas and strategies. Let's follow him. As the Mighty God, he defeats his enemies easily. Let's hide behind him. As the everlasting Father, he loves us endlessly. Let's enjoy him. As the Prince of Peace, he reconciles us while we are still his enemies. Let's welcome his rule over our lives. And so when we consider the birth of our Savior this Christmas season, it's my prayer that regardless of whatever darkness you are facing, you will put your hope, that, that guarantee you will put your hope in Christ alone. Let's pray. Our great God and our Heavenly Father, we often put our hope in so many things beside you. Often we cling to the darkness rather than turn to the light. We thank you, Lord, that you did not wait for us, but you initiated that. And we pray that, Lord, the light of Christ would shine in our hearts and that even a lost world of unbelievers living in darkness would see that light. In Christ's name, amen.